Hey folks, welcome back. You found the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is Elliot, and I'm here with Andy. Hey guys. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast. We don't offer any knowledge content-related benefits to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Uh, knowledge is for everyone. And if we get more money than we need, we'll be donating to good causes and we'll keep you in the loop on that. We've also started a new miniseries focused on peripheral stuff for our Patreon folks that will be tied around some subject areas correlated to core content of this podcast. Um, so we'll be talking about things from Cottagecore and Joel Salatin to Radioactive Pigs and that time climate change wiped out an entire civilization due to farming methods and much, much more. If that sounds interesting to you, for $2, you'll get some mini episodes um, like that, and we'll be able to support this podcast for you guys. Here's a quick taste of it. Uh, and it, it made a lot of sense, and I think people understood it, but now we have the science and tech uh, resources to actually uh, biologically prove it um, by tracking things like uh, genetic mutations that we can trace, and by using things like pollen records, uh, we can show that Three, for example, three of the four best selections of honey locust came from Cherokee regions. And there's uh, evidence, again, from pollen records and things like that, of these tribes actually burning and managing forests for specific seeds and species and propagating new species. Uh, species. So we have this really cool research showing that Native Americans were not only uh, supporting the landscape in things like managed burns, but they're actually selectively propagating species and not just species, but actually cultivars and recognizing the best of each of these foods and then spreading them like wildfire, essentially. Hopefully you enjoyed that. And if so, head on over to Patreon and for $2, you can get access to all of it. There's not much up yet, but we'll be adding to it at least once every two weeks at the latest. So clearly, we do enjoy making this content, and for our traditional episodes, there's not an insignificant amount of work that goes into each episode, as evidenced by the sources listed in each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. Additionally, if you are using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks find the podcast and hopefully join us on our journey. Reviews are incredibly useful in helping us both get ranked higher in algorithms used by iTunes, meaning more listeners, which also gives us the opportunity to start drawing in folks for interviews, which we would both love to do, and I think you guys would benefit from as well. We've been growing fairly consistently, and that's pretty much entirely to the work that you do by giving us reviews and telling other folks about us, and it's awesome, and we appreciate that. We'd like to think that what we're doing is unique and valuable, and our hope is that we can pr present the current challenges facing the planet in a new light that gives hope and a sense of liberation through understanding how we can individually and collectively make meaningful change. Lastly, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. We don't just post updates about the show, but we incorporate leftist and e ecological history, as well as some foraging, hunting, and botanical guidelines that we find interesting. And, of course, memes. Coming in hot, as Andy likes to say. Wow. Why should I even be here? I'm stealing your tag, dude. I got nothing to say. I like it. Although I will add that we say ecological differently, and I'm not sure which one's right. I it's say ecological. Ecological. Like and it. it's the English language, so whoever is alive longest wins, I guess? Uh, yeah, that's not a good look for America. <laughs> Especially after Thanksgiving. 
<laughs> I love it. We highly recommend going back to the first episode of this mini series at the very least and catching up since each episode springboards from the previous content. I also would recommend at least listening to the first episode of the podcast because the framework that a lot of Bookchin's ideas uh, stems from a very similar place. So if you are familiar with the complex systems theory, it'll make a lot of this make more sense. So that's just something I definitely would recommend if this is your first time uh, checking out what we're doing. Yeah, great plug. Listen to more of our episodes. Do it. We're totally unbiased. Do it. So the past few episodes, we've focused on drawing from foundational anarchist theory and then applying it to the real world and how it works in practice. Now, for this episode, we're reviewing some of the work of the godfather of eco-anarchism himself, Murray Bookchin. The book we're primarily drawing from is a collection of essays spanning decades, published by the good people at AK Press. So go check them out because the book is about a third the cost there than it is on Amazon. It might actually even be less. And the title of this collection of essays is Post-Scarcity Anarchism. It's a phenomenal collection, and it's definitely one that's harder to find. So again, if you are interested, it's usually online for free because that's what anarchists do. And if you want to support the publisher, AK Press is the place to go get it. So you can get it and save some money. And fuck Jeff. I think I said, yeah, right in a stupid bald face last episode, but that got deleted. So I'm going to say it again. Yeah, if you follow us on Instagram, you would know that. Unfortunately, this is our second time around recording this because I lost everything in the, mi- in the midst of editing this episode. So we're probably going to say a lot of we said this last episode, or I can't remember if I said that this episode or last episode. So sorry for that in advance. So we're going to be focusing primarily on two of the essays in the collection, Ecology and Revolutionary Thought, as well as Towards a Liberatory Technology. Those are the most relevant for our purposes. Uh, we don't really need to talk about like, listen here, Marxist, but it is a good read. We're probably going to spend most of the time on Ecology and Revolutionary Thought in particular, because uh, the technology... Towards a liberatory technology is pretty straightforward in terms of understanding the relationships between humanity and technology, and it uh, ultimately is building off of a lot of Kropotkin's thoughts about uh, standing on the shoulders of our ancestors. We'll, we'll tie it all together, but it's not, I guess, as focal and important to really dissect and unpack as ecology and revolutionary thought. So, like I said, Kropotkin is a big mentor philosophically for Bookchin's work. And we covered some of his ta- uh, discussions in the, I think you called it the, what did you call it? The Commonwealth of Bread? The Commonwealth of Bread. Yeah. The Bread was, Book. The Bread Book. The Conquest of Bread. The Conquest of Bread. It's not actually the Commonwealth of Bread. It is not a, yeah, I don't know. We're not going there. Um <laughs> So we talked about that a bit in the few episodes back, and I don't think those 19th century and early 20th century thinkers really would have ever imagined capitalism has lasted as long as it has. Even 150 years ago, Kropotkin was acknowledging the role of technology in making work less important and restructuring the concept of what it meant to say, you are a socialist. Back in the 19th century and even the early 20th century, the idea of saying you are a socialist or a communist or an anarchist was the idea that you own you are laboring for the benefit of all and making the world a better place because toil was important and with technology 
that framework is changing because we don't need to toil as much because of the technology and how it exists. And we'll talk about the application of technology a little bit because that is a big function of uh, Bookchin's collection. So Bookchin does a really great job of bringing these uh, ideas into the 21st century where capitalism is so all-encompassing, where everything has been commodified, and that we must defend ecology for our very survival. And that's why we're here, right? This is the whole point of this podcast. And that's also why we ask you to follow us on Patreon, because capitalism. So a foundational role in understanding what Bookchin describes, which later becomes coined as something along the lines of eco-anarchy, he explicitly tries to build his framework from this historical context explaining that what he's doing isn't out of the ordinary and that, in quote, in almost every period since the Renaissance, the development of revolutionary thought has been heavily influenced by branches of science, often in conjunction with a school of philosophy. Unlike many 20th century philosophers, Bookchin attempts to continue the work of Kropotkin in drawing from the scientific community to enhance both his understanding of the complex nature of capitalism in his time and to also bolster his positions of the necessity of humankind to not only understand the role of technology and the environment and our ability to thrive, but to leverage this scientific prowess. We aren't looking to run away from the world we have built, but to transition it into the hands of the working class and not the select few. And I can't fucking read that without, or say that without thinking of Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I think I said that last time. last time, too. yeah. And I was like, God so damn that it, That sounds Bernie. very Bernie. So in doing this in a localized way, we're able to give autonomy to the people most heavily impacted by the decisions to use technology and extract the resources for that technology to exist. That is those people where the factories exist, where the mines exist. In contemporary capitalism, generally speaking, those people really don't have a whole lot of say. If you're familiar with the term nimbyism, not in my backyard, it's why white people never have to live next to like gas compression stations. They're always dropped in the hood. That's why the highways cut through the hood back in the 60s when they cut them in. All those things happen because of the ability of people with wealth to essentially push aside all of the failures of capitalism to the poorest people in the community or in other communities. And even on an international sense, that continues to happen. Uh, A lot of folks, uh, especially in America, the the quote-unquote socialists in American politics like AOC who I think are really important for changing the conversation, they look at places like those uh, Nordic countries as examples of what the world could be like or America could be like. And on the surface, they seem great. And I think they do have a lot to offer for working class people. But those places still are only able to thrive by exploiting third world labor. Uh, If they had to actually fully absorb the costs of their lifestyle and not export it to countries where kids are working in mines then the reality of their living conditions as a colonist state would be, I guess, more uh, troublesome. And I think that's uh, part of the complex system that people fail to recognize with these plug-and-play solutions that they come up with you know, on the surface for these conversations. Yeah, and I think it offers an opportunity to destigmatize terms like socialism, because people are able to at least articulate in a meaningful way that it's not necessarily bad. And even though those countries are not socialist, they are capitalist with a strong welfare state, they at least they can help untarnish the words that are meaningful in those conversations. Right. Um, so to kind of bring this back home, 
the whole argument Bookchin is, begins his conversation with is that technology is valuable and important, but it's only valuable and important and beneficial if the people that have to live with the worst parts of those conditions have a voice in how they're being used and how they're being extracted. So one of the examples he gives is he talks about um, mining technology and how mining technology hasn't really changed in four or 500 years because there, it wasn't as profitable to do so because human labor was so cheap. And if our economy is people-focused and we're talking about our neighbors, not some abstract concept in a third world country that we don't see or even hear about, it's much harder to justify sending eight-year-old kids into mines when it's your neighbor's kid. Right. So we're getting into examples. Let's zoom back out and kind of come in broad. Yeah. That, that, sorry, I jumped into the part that I was like, we're not going to talk about this at all. Yeah. <laughs> and I like just, jumped right in. Right. I, I think it understanding the technological role and the human focused aspect of it is really important to have the, to, I guess, start developing these conversations in a way I think that's accessible for folks that don't have a, a heavy theory background. Okay. I got you. So let's let's start with Bookchin's theory, um, and then kind of work work our way back to what we were just talking about because I think we're gonna that's gonna come back up again. Okay. Um, so in this conversation, he challenges the assumption of humanity as a parasite, and he argues that obviously man could be described as a highly destructive parasite who threatens to destroy his host, the natural world, and eventually himself. In ecology, however, the word parasite is not an answer to a question, but raises a question itself. Ecologists know that a destructive parasitism of this kind usually reflects the disruption of an ecological situation, and indeed, many species that seem highly destructive under one set of conditions are eminently useful under another set of conditions. What imparts a profoundly critical function to ecology is the question raised by man's destructive abilities. What is the disruption that has turned man into a destructive parasite? What produces a form of parasitism that results not only in vast natural imbalances, but also threatens the existence of humanity itself? End quote. If we think back to the first episode, we talked about the roles of species in a community, and we talked about how parasites have a positive-negative relationship with the species they're drawing from. But over time, the species evolve to support one another. Our understanding of this relationship should provide us the understanding that we, as the parasite, have no interest killing the planet and turning into a predator, but would rather create a harmonious relationship with the rest of the planet. And I know this sounds kind of hippy-dippy and everyone loves everyone, but it does matter. We can create systems where humans are beneficial to the planet and further enhance the living conditions of other organisms on the planet, creating a complex system that is in balance, which is the key concept here. Kind of piggybacking on that and talking about, I guess, some of the stuff we have covered in the podcast. When we were talking about things like pasture systems, we talked about how density can go both ways. You can either graze, for example, just maybe one cow per acre, and that cow will sustainably survive. Or if you go through other intensive systems that require a biological community that can support the cow and having the right method of grazing, you can actually support more animals. However, if you only go up a little bit and you put two cows and you don't change your system, then they're going to overgraze it. 
the you can increase the land capacity by understanding the way to mimic nature and accept aggressively following those uh, i guess like st- uh, structures so I think that's one of the things we need to think about. Like, I think it's very Malthusian. So if you're not familiar with Thomas Malthus, his idea was that essentially we need to decrease the population because the planet can only support so many people. And that's a very mathematical and heartless, heartless. And abs- again, we the big concept of complex systems theory is that in having variety, we're able to, uh, the systems can sustain a more amount. It's The system is worth more than the parts it's comprised of. Right. And so I feel like a, a way to put it in simpler terms for me to understand is basically the more variety in inputs that you have, you have a wider range of variety and output coming out. And those outputs should be able to support multiple species and multiple organisms living in that complex system. Everybody gets everything. Yeah. And so like a really easy metaphor, I think, to talk about is like in most parts of the country, at least on the East Coast, there's a major problem with two species, deer and coyotes. Koi wolves now, they're getting big. Yeah. Uh, So those are two major issues. And you're like, how can they both be an issue? Coyotes eat deer and the deer are overpopulated and starving to death. So what's happening? The system are ecological, ecological, according to Elliot, uh, systems are uh, simplified because we've cut up forests and we've clear cut a lot of forests. And one of the things we'll talk about in a prologue coming up is the history of the forests and the especially the East Coast, where a lot of them were clear cut up until about 100 years ago. So if you drive around, you don't see many trees over about 100 years old. And what's happened is because we've erased the history of the indigenous forest management practices, the the ecosystem isn't really designed to be complex because everything is the same age. And you need that diversity in the ages, in the ecotones, and all of the different functions that forests have to be able to sustain life. But because these larger species that demanded those complex systems didn't get wiped out, now they're living on a ecosystem that can't support them, both for culling the unnecessary and the weaker species because those that web of food doesn't exist anymore but also because of the fact that everything is singular it's all essentially the same type of forest so i guess my point is that going back to bookchin is this idea that when we say that you know we can only support so many people because of you know, you can only grow X amount of food per acre of corn or yada, yada, yada. It's because we're we're trying to break it into the sum of its parts. And by having complex systems, the system reproduces its own value and increases its own value, which becomes more than the value of those singular parts separately. And Bookchin is arguing that we can use our understanding of ecology to make the planet more hospitable to what we need as a quote-unquote apex species right did i bring that all back together i i think so okay um yeah so in trying to simplify in trying to simplify things people have flattened out i guess the the velocity of energy within the system that's no longer being contained right so we can't making it more difficult for us to have harmonious relationships with species makes sense so like you know if you go for if you were to drop somebody in the woods today they would never survive because the abundance of the forests don't exist anymore and that abundance was directly correlated to the complexity of those systems and also the human input because one of the things that 
I think people don't realize is that a lot of the reason why there were so many edible species across most continents was from those indigenous farming practices that were selectively breeding species that made the planet more geared towards what we needed. So Bookchin argue. Why can't I say that right? I think I am. It just doesn't sound right in my head. Bookchin argues that this... Now I can't read. I'll do it. Bookchin argues that this issue stems from patriarchy, which has become the foundation to not only the region that stems from his own writing, Rojava, but also the foundation of Zapatista movement, which we just covered. The first steps in creating the EZLN first began with women organizing other women across towns, but also in giving women not only equal rights in the region, but equal representation and the ability to organize outside of the scope of men. Bookchin argues that, quote, the problem runs even deeper. The notion that man must dominate nature emerges directly from the domination of man by man. The patriarchal family planted the seed of domination in the nuclear relations of humanity, the classical split in the ancient world between spirit and reality, indeed between mind and labor. It was not until organic community relations, feudal or peasant in form, dissolved into market relationships that the planet itself was reduced to a resource for exploitation. Just as men are converted into commodities under capitalism, so every aspect of nature is converted into a commodity, a resource to manufacture and merchandise wantonly. The liberal euphemisms for this process involved are, in quote, growth, in quote, industrial society, and, in quote, urban blight. By whatever language they are described, the phenomena have their roots in the domination of man by man. You said wanton, wantonly. I can't read. Want, wantonly? It's wantonly. I was like the bottom of our class in high school, all right? No way. Oh, okay, I was like middle bottom. You were in the middle, the top of the middle. Top I was the, of the, was the top, top of the of bottom, bottom third. Middle. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's perfectly fine. Yeah. To get back to this, I guess. So he's arguing, and this is something I think is really important, especially in a lot of leftist circles, is deconstructing this concept of patriarchy and how we relate between one another, between the sexes, I guess you could say and equalizing both work and relationships and taking them out of that capitalist sphere of understanding and relationships. Because in that kind of domination where we reinforce the need to continue dominating in all of our relationships, uh, whether that's in the home or uh, within nature, there's always this conversation. And I think it's the it ends up going, the, uh, I guess, is framed the wrong way about humans relationship with nature and the reason why that's the wrong way to think about it is that's like saying your heart's relationship with your body we are a part of nature and we are not some abstract binary thing where we can be a part of or not part of nature we are nature and no matter what we do whatever technology we develop that relationship doesn't change but by trying to give this abstract idea that we can exist outside of nature and in some way control or manage or manipulate it as, I guess, more not even necessarily that we can't manipulate it, because obviously we can, but that we can have full control and that nature won't respond back and have skills that we don't know about or aren't aware of or that can be more powerful than us. Right. And I put a quote in here that um, kind of speaks to what I was trying to say about flattening of the rate at which uh, our complex systems will either expand or uh, produce output. I, I always tend to look at things like in concept and in theory as 
graphs and charts in my head just as a way to visualize like what we're talking about. And so when you talk about variety of inputs, picture a graph with a whole lot of peaks and valleys in it, right? And those different inputs or that range in input is the complex system that we all live in. That would be our relationship in nature, not with nature, but we fall somewhere in that, you know, that range. And as you dominate the landscape of the inputs for that complex system, those peaks and valleys flatten out. So what that looks like is the inputs and outputs becoming simplified, where we're putting in the direct inputs that gives the outputs for us and nothing else. And that's where the parasitism comes in, because that range of output is supposed to be in place to support all of those peaks and valleys, if that makes sense. I got lost, not going to lie, but... We'll cut that out. No, we don't have to. I think it was fine. I just, I started thinking about peaks and valleys and got distracted. Right. So <laughs> I'll, I'll just read the quote by Bookchin then and see if this makes sense. But the end quote, the point is that man is undoing the work of organic evolution. And by creating vast urban agglomerations of concrete, metal, and glass, by overriding and undermining the complex subtlety organized ecosystems that constitute local differences in the natural world, and in short, by replacing highly complex organic environment with a simplified inorganic one, man is disassembling the biotic pyramid that supported humanity for countless millennia. In the course of replacing the complex ecological relationships on which all advanced living things depend for more elementary relationships, man is steadily restoring the biosphere to a stage which will be able to support only simpler life forms. It's funny, like, I don't know if he was ever aware of things like complex systems theory but his writing makes it sound like that was the case i think the point that we're getting to is that only when we can have smaller communities that are connected together in doing that we have to recognize the needs of the community around us the environment around us and the unique characteristics that the environment in those areas offer you're you know we always talk about like in globalization the benefits of globalization is the specialization that exists. That's what I was just going to say. So I have, a, I have something I will expand on, but go ahead. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, so with this idea of globalization and specialization, there, the idea is sound. However, when you put it on that size of a scale, the, the scale of it no longer meets the ecological necessities for those communities dropping a hundred square mile manufacturing region that specializes in one type of manufacturing eliminates millions of ecological niches. And further, while it may bring in specialties and things like that, while that might bring in things like jobs and so on and so forth, the reason why that location was chosen is likely not because of the things that are nuanced for that community, but rather because it made financial sense. And we, we've kind of talked about that a little bit. And I think actually it was in the last episode when I talked, I refer back to the first episode when we talked about like, financially speaking, McDonald's makes more sense than your local farmer to buy a hamburger because McDonald's will grow the cattle in Brazil and ship them to China to get packaged and then ship them back to the US because of the way the currency laws work and the tax laws work and all of those different things. It's actually cheaper to send a cow that grew up in Brazil to China back to the United States to sell as opposed to the cow that grew up and ate the, the grass on the field across the street. That cow's going to be more expensive, but 
ecologically speaking, the cow across the street is by multiple magnitudes better for the environment. So those things are not necessarily correlated. So did I make you lose your point? No. Okay. Um, so I just wanted to stick to the specialization part of it. They've What humans have done is taking the resources that we... We'll go back to mining. The resources that we take from the earth and that whole region has a complex ecological system and we negate all of it by going there and just extracting just that one resource that we need. Yeah. I feel like that's, you know, uh, looking at it in a long-term standpoint, it it seems like overkill and that's because it is. Yeah. And those people in those areas don't have the voice because there is no sense of, again, there's no economic democracy in capitalism. The workers don't have a say. Like you can say you, you vote with your, your wallet, but if 80% of the money you make, 90% of the money you make is not discretionary spending, then you really don't. You get to choose who, which landlord you're going to pay and barely afford to live. And there's no real difference between what you're choosing from. The point is that with decisions like the like what Elliot was just talking about, we don't really offer communal input. And the voices that re- usually represent the community in capitalism, and it's inherent to the system, is that those with the most money have the most voice. So the people that are least likely to live with those decisions. To, to bring it back to Bookchin, we'll, we'll just do another quote. End quote. Wherever feasible... Industrial agriculture must give way to soil and agricultural husbandry. The factory floor must yield to gardening and horticulture, and I do not wish to imply that we must surrender the gains acquired by large-scale agriculture and mechanization. What I do contend, however, is that the land must be cultivated as though it were a garden. Its flora must be diversified and carefully tended, balanced by fauna and tree shelter appropriate to the region. Decentralization is important, moreover, for the development of the agriculturalists as well as for the development of agriculture. Food cultivation, practiced in a truly ecological sense, presupposes that the agriculturist is familiar with all the features and subtleties of the terrain on which the crops are grown. There's two points there. The first point is talking about specialization. And the second point is about the role of decentralizing with while still keeping the technological benefits. So I want to talk about the first one, uh, which is that cross-pollination between skilled labor. So that's something that I think that gets lost, especially a lot now because of specialization. And essentially, we have these silos of knowledge that exist and they don't really talk to each other. If you did listen to that first episode, so one of the things I talked about specifically was the Macy Conference of 1941. What was so important about this conference was it was the first time in history, or at least modern history, that specialists across a spectrum of fields and science came together to talk about some of the things that they were seeing. And that was when complex systems theory really started to get a hold because what we found out was that all these different uh, specializations were seeing a lot of the same patterns in nature. And it was there that uh, a lot of these ideas really came to fruition because of these conversations happening between specialists. That's that's one of the things that's really important to uh, talk about is that, you know, as somebody that used to work in the trade, the running joke for tradesmen is that if we ever listened to the drafters and the architects that designed the buildings, none of the buildings would stand up or run or work. And the basic idea is that folks that usually work in drafting and architecture have never actually, like swung a hammer for a paycheck. But when it comes down to actually doing the actual work, they don't really understand how that correlates to the work 
that's getting done on the site and vice versa. You know, the tradesmen usually don't have a really comprehensive understanding of why those decisions were being made by the drafters and the architects. By cross-pollinating those specialist fields, uh, they're able to better understand one another and attune their decision-making towards what the other one needs. People that design tools for working on a farm, for example, if they don't understand the conditions that a farmer is working in, they're not going to really design those tools quite to what the farmer needs. And I think that's what he's getting at at this point. The second part of that is there is somebody, we've been talking about this idea of like regenerative regenerative agriculture. And Mark Shepard does a really good job of intertwining these ideas of industrialization with this decentralized regenerative sense of agriculture, which is not as simple as a monocrop. And if you guys are interested in that kind of stuff, he talks a lot about how to use row crops and things like that in regenerative systems, even working around things like key line systems, which I think will have dropped right before this episode because I'm about halfway done editing right now. So there's a lot of different pieces to this. And I think it brings back this idea of actually the first episode of this uh, mini series where we were talking about urban spaces. And Catherine Tumber talks about how urban spaces are great places for specialists of different areas to work together. But at some point, the urban spaces become too big and wealth inequality begins to creep up and um, monopolizations begins to creep up. And it seems like the number that uh, all of the urbanists that work in that sphere of architecture seem to settle around around 100, 150,000 people is about as big as an urban space can be before that localization, that sense of direct democracy begins to kind of fall apart. And so Bookchin does talk about decentralizing, but he talks about it in a way as also like decentralizing populations and spreading people out into small communities that are closely connected and closely support one another. Yeah, the term that you might have heard that really stems from this is libertarian municipalism. Yes, he he does use that. Yeah, and essentially it is what it sounds like. We talked about in the last episode about how we would reimagine um, using the Zapatista model, how we'd reimagine what that would look like in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think this idea of libertarian municipalism really plays well into that concept. Right, because our country is extremely vast and diverse and rather than specializing certain regions for one particular or handful of resources you can use that diversity and complexity to get and support a much much larger system than we have now yeah um so bookchin compares the all of the above approach taken by pre-industrial societies in regards to energy generation as a model of resilient systems using a multiplicity of systems. For example, the use of wood, peat, coal, vegetable starches, and animal fats, what he calls integration through diversity. This integration through diversity is not a plug-and-play system, though, and Bookchin isn't under the impression that megacities can replace the massive fuel consumption with solar panels, wind turbines, and hydroelectric dams in the immediate vicinity. He suggests, much like the conversations we've had in the first episode of this reimagining series, that megacities are simply too big and that they demand too much energy and food to ever be realistically sustainable and that we need to reimagine what these sprawling urban belts should operate like. 
Bookchin talks about this idea of these cities being too large, and I think that also plays out in now going kind of to that second episode, uh, chapter, or essay, rather, mm-hmm. about uh, liberatory technology. Uh, the idea that this this also applies in the specialists in uh, manufacturing and all these other technologies, that while we can build out marginal efficiencies by scaling up massively, that might be good for capitalists, but it almost is never good for the local ecology. Um, right, because it's a single input, typically. Yeah. And like we've said, pretty much anytime there's like one fun- one thing that's too big in an ecosystem, it generally causes the ecosystem to become simplified because it can't handle that, and it ultimately collapses, or it, the, the more complex species start to collapse. So he, this applies in his understanding of how economics should apply in terms of, again, the manufacturing and things like that, where instead of thinking about building those systems that are marginally more efficient, but also cover massive amounts of footprints and require globalization, then instead we should be looking to replace those factories or retool those factories to be multi-use so that instead of having multiple massive factories in various parts of the globe that then ship parts across the globe using massive amounts of energy, Instead, we could focus on uh, building multi-use facilities. And I think 3D printing is something that's going to be a huge function. And I was really hoping when when I started looking for what our next episode was going to be, that there was somebody that was kind of building on the role of 3D printing and anarchist theory and things like that, because there are some really cool things going on. There's this group called the, the Four Thieves Vinegar Collective. And what they do is they essentially open source the development of 3D printing for making uh, medical labs. So for people that can't afford things like insulin and other things like that, that you can actually 3D print your own labs using the technology that they've developed. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, so it's essentially a giant fuck you to the pharmaceutical industry. Their main focus is building out that kind of technology. And it's only, you know, I'm curious what somebody much smarter than I am would have to say about that and tying that into all the things that we're talking about. Right. I saw a mechanized 3D printer that builds a house using, you know, cement, uh, a couple bags of cement and some other raw material inputs, but it can build a, you know, it's not a permanent dwelling, but it'll stand about four months in the elements. It builds this uh, house. It can build like 10,000 of them in like a couple hours. It's insane. Yeah. So like that, that's kind of the future of technology and this idea of retooling these factories to be able to where we can essentially do things like this, 3D print using different material, raw materials and um, being more efficient about it. While also, despite being maybe on a, a smaller footprint, we're able to utilize the localization and that sense of local ownership of how the environment is being impacted by these decisions to make more sustainable and resilient communities that also are not giving up their ability to, um, I guess, be successful. I want to pull a quick quote from Bookchin that kind of uh, reinforces this idea. And he says, in quote, If I have examined this possibility in some detail, it has been to demonstrate that an anarchist society, far from being a remote ideal, has become a precondition for the practice of ecological principles. To sum up the critical message of ecology, if we must diminish the variety in the natural world, we debase its unity and wholeness. We destroy the forces making for natural harmony and for a lasting equilibrium. And even more significant, we introduce an absolute retrogression in the development of the natural world. 
if we wish to advance the unity and stability of the natural world, if we wish to harmonize it, we must conserve and promote variety. And if we understand what he was saying about that without that direct democracy of the people that are working and being exposed to the consequences of our decisions for development, um, there's no way to practice any sense of humanity and uh, harmony with nature. Simplifying those inputs, which we've done, has done exactly what I said by flattening out the variety of outputs needed to support um, more complex life forms. So let's fix that. Yeah. Also, after reading a couple of his quotes, guys, you really have to read this book. It's a simple read and the concepts aren't very difficult to understand, but the way he frames them, uh, we're doing our best to sum up um, the ideas in this, but I, I highly endorse uh, going out and getting a copy of this book and giving it a read. It's it's an easy read and it's, a, I think, a more modern read, despite the fact these essays came out in the 60s. They speak to the reality that we all understand that things can't keep going on the way they are. And that some, something's going to give. And I think, I think collectively right now, there's a part of the reason why politics are so polemic right now is that there's a, a subconscious collective sense of anxiety that's building up because we know what's happening right now across the planet. It's like when you see the birds huddling on the trees before uh, like our, an earthquake happens or whatever they do. Like there, there's that sense, even if they're not specifically aware that this thing is coming, a very primal part of our brains is like, this is not going to, we can't keep doing this and things are changing and they shouldn't be changing. For, I'll speak for my age group. I feel like a lot of people understand that we have the information and technology to make change, but the change isn't being affected the way that we thought it would be. I don't know. It's hard to see what revolutions are going to look like. Yeah, but we're, we're getting it started with two microphones and sharing this information because we, we, you and I sit here and have these conversations frequently. And we started this podcast because we wanted to make sure that other people were hearing us. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think a lot of we get a lot of messages like every day from you guys. And it's really awesome the amount of folks that I'm usually the one managing the Instagram account. So when we get messages, I usually screenshot them to Elliot. And I feel like I'm doing that more and more often because. It's just, it's really cool to see you guys be like, you know, I, I came here for the ecology piece or farming or whatever, or even for folks that come from the other side that are like, I came here because I wanted to listen to leftist podcasts. And I will get these messages like, I had never thought of any of this this way. And I'm rethinking how I view the world. And that's awesome because I, I think this makes a lot of sense. Liberals are just socialists that haven't realized it yet. And and conservatives are usually anarchists that haven't really realized it yet, because 90% of people believe that we all deserve the right to own our labor and that we all deserve the right to have a meaningful life. It's just about unpacking the dichotomous system we have in the United States, because it is geared in a way so that you can't imagine a world outside of it. A lot of people say, I'm not really a conservative or a liberal or whatever, but I kind of have these things from each of these parts. And it's usually because you actually aren't, you're trying to put yourself in a system that you're not a part of. And I think sometimes when you hear how nature, how we should be mimicking nature because that's what we are, we're a part of nature, that you can start to see how these parallels exist between us. And if we're able to create sustainable systems, it has to be by mimicking what's going on in nature because we are a part of nature. And I think that's kind of the, the crux of this podcast has right. been about bringing these two disparate uh, subjects and um, 
Much Smashing like Smashing them together. Yeah, kind of like what we're talking about that. And we're, we're trying to cross-pollinate that knowledge and see how they impact one, not only impact one another, but how they uh, reinforce one another in a lot of ways. And I think for a lot of folks, that makes a lot of sense in a way they've never really thought about it. So we've talked a little bit about the technology piece, and I do want to get back into that a little bit. Okay. We have talked about this idea of retooling the economy, and um, I think it's important to remember part of that retooling, uh, what's so valuable about it other than the direct democracy and the protection that comes for the environment because of that direct democracy is the fact that there's a, a huge economic component to this. Uh, in the sense that we're decentralizing our economies. We're no longer tied to a handful of companies. So like, I'm sure people watched like the debates going on during the primaries and things like that. And there was this one moment that I thought about and it just kind of stuck in my head when Mayo Pete went after Bernie for um, saying he wanted to get rid of private health insurance, even if there was a Medicare for all. And he, his response was, what are you going to tell the workers for the 10,000 workers in the city they happen to be doing the debate in who work for the health insurance industry. And it was like, really? Like, I, I, work is important, but meaningless work is not important. If there's a city out there that uh, 10, 20% of the population works for one industry, that industry, those people, that entire city is beholden to that industry. And by decentralizing economies, the, these corporations don't have a stranglehold on the population to leverage, oh, if you don't drop our taxes to zero, we're going to take the jobs away. You know what? Fuck you. Like, we own the companies. You can't do that. And by decentralizing, you're localizing and creating that sense of democracy while also holding those companies accountable. And also realizing that these systems aren't plug and play and realizing that these systems are complex. If 10,000 people lose their jobs, those people still have a specialized skill. Yeah. I'm just hanging up on the example, but yeah. I'm just saying that's the whole point of having a complex system is so that you know when things change, it's not like you get cut out or excluded, which is the simplification that people bring to complex systems. That's not necessarily what's happening. It could be a sliding scale, maybe shift over. I guess the case to be made that some people think you should have to work to have food and shelter. And I would say if those things already exist, why are we continuing to pay for them? and people can do the labor that they that is needed. The general idea of a liberatory technology, to circle back to his essay, is that we have technology that exists that can make 70% of work obsolete, 80% of work obsolete. We can have robots design or build code to 3D print things based on, you know, population or whatever it might be. Whenever, you know, if we have like if we use technology for a benefit, it's dem- democratically owned. Theoretically, and this is just going totally off on a tangent. You I could, like those. You could design like a 3D printing, a house printing system so that like as people literally move to a community and enter whatever database exists to, for a census, you can literally have that auto set so it prints new houses based on that population shift and things like that, eliminating tons of jobs. And we shouldn't be saying eliminating jobs is a bad thing. Like, we exist on the earth for only so long. Why do we need to work every second of it? It's not necessarily eliminating the job is the point I was trying to make. Those people who would have been working building the house, they can use their the human resource, their the work, that their output that they would be putting out. They can use that elsewhere. It's not like it's disappearing off, you know, off of the face of the earth. The energy isn't disappearing. Oh. Energy can't be created nor destroyed. It's just going elsewhere. Yeah, and I, that's, I mean, I guess... 
we're almost talking about two different things. Like I don't, I'm not saying like those people can't do something productive. That's that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. They're saying those people aren't being productive anymore. They they still are. It's just in a different. Yeah, and productivity. You know, people are like, well, I want to do something that I'm passionate about, and, or you know, whatever it might be. Like nobody ever says I'm going to go when I graduate high school or when I'm graduating high school. My goal is to be like middle management. Or like, I'm, my goal is to be an administrative assistant. Or like, you know, th- that's not something that exists, but those jobs... And if that is your goal, that's totally fine too. Yeah, if it is, sure. But the point is that like, there's a lot of jobs that don't need to exist. And like the idea that, oh, if you're losing your job as a skill, that means you need to go be productive someplace else in terms of economic productivity. Right. But we can be productive in other ways, other meaningful ways that benefit the lives of people around us or people that aren't around us directly by doing other things like creating podcasts that people want to listen to or, you know, managing woodlands or whatever, whatever your passion might be, because it's probably not being a representative for a health insurance company on why your claim got denied. Like, no one went to high school and was like, I'm going to go to college to go do that for a living. I actually did that. It was terrible. Okay, so <laughs> so I got shot down. But the point being that we need to detangle that idea of economic productivity from like meaningful work. And we've had that conversation like a million times at this point. Since we started this podcast, hell yeah. Yeah, uh, I think that's the one thing Elliot will take away from this is like, fuck this system. It's used. Oh, I don't even get me started. I can't right now. I haven't smoked enough weed today, guys. I'm a little fired up. Yeah. So... Um, we've talked about this idea of decentralization and its role in things like urban and suburban and rural communities and why it's so important for resilience. And what it comes down to is that we have this technology that we can use. And by pulling people out of this toil of work of 40 hours a week, it allows people to be more politically engaged, more environmentally engaged, and ultimately benefits the collective system more. We've entered a point of te- where technology is able to provide us with opulence and we're not required to toil for the benefit of all. And yet we still do the 40 hour work week. FDR proposed getting rid of the 40 hour work week to drop it to, I believe, 34 hours. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head that number. It's 34, 32, 30, I think. 32. 30 hour, actually. 30 hour yeah, isn't there? I'll just say the, in the 30s, FDR pushed a. 30-hour work week proposal as full-time work because of, at the time, the development of technology no longer necessitated a 40-hour work week. It is now 90 years later, and we are still working 40-hour work weeks, and technology has increased. If technology has increased production since the 60s, 300%, then I don't know what the figure is, but it's probably close to eight, 900%. And the 40-hour work week was... Uh, started during the Industrial Revolution, literally yeah. to get their factories to run twenty four seven. Factories don't do that anymore. Yet we still work jobs. I mean, based some on- do, but you know, right, right. But still, this is, I guess, really kind of getting off topic. But like the like, we have a lot of unions, and there's nothing wrong with unions, and they defend those uh, blue collar jobs, especially in manufacturing centers. But they wouldn't need to have the fights they have today if they democratically owned the institution because shrinking those work weeks would mean liberation, not losing pay. Yeah, that's pretty uh, an anarchist way to look at it. 
Yeah. Technology that can automate work should mean more vacation time, not fear of losing jobs and chronic unemployment. And that was like, I, I think a couple episodes we talked about like Andrew Yang. And like, that's the big problem with his pitch for the, whatever he calls it, the freedom dividend, whatever right. bullshit name it was, was that it wasn't a solution. It was a, a bandage over right. a reality that chronic unemployment is inevitable because of the way our economic system is designed. People always joke about like, oh, raising minimum wage is going to uh, automate all those jobs away. We should be saying fucking good. Why are people wasting their life sitting at a cash register, like taking money and like moving a burger from a grill to like the fucking desk? Well, that goes back to the the argument we had about patriarchy, where it's about dominance. Like in order for you to be winning, somebody has to be losing. And that's how it's looked at currently. Yeah. So, yeah, we got a little off topic, but it's all right. I think this all kind of ties back to this general concept of Bookchin saw a lot of this coming and said we need to start developing the resources to develop decentralized systems that use this technology in a way that liberates us instead of becoming a surveillance state that can control and manipulate and exploit us by saying, oh, I heard you were talking about a new car. Now I'm going to throw you ads for a new car and things like that. Oops. I think we, I think we fucked up. Yeah, we messed that up. Sorry. Sorry, Mary. Yeah. So I'm going to drop one more quote, and I think this speaks to a lot of the stuff that we've covered, and I think it's worth hearing. So in quote, with the arrival of mass production as the predominant mode of production, man became an extension of the machine, and not only of mechanical devices in the productive process, but also of social devices in the social process. The decline from craftsmen to work from an active and increasingly passive personality is completed by man to consumer, an economic entity whose tastes, values, thoughts, and sensibility are engineered by bureaucratic teams and think tanks. Man, standardized by machine, is reduced to man. So he doesn't really offer a solution to this man problem. Man, standardized by machine, is reduced to a machine. Did I say that wrong? Yeah, you said is reduced to man. Oh. I mean, so man standardized by machine is reduced to a machine. Yeah. We're, we're a well oiled machine living as, you know, a machine with interchangeable parts rather than humanity. Yeah. And that's like something you see a lot in, I guess, pop culture now. Like, like dystopian movies and sci fi movies and stuff like that. Hell yeah, you do. Well, not even just that, but like the way we treat ourselves. Like, how many times do you hear like fitness gurus and shit like that say, like, your body is a machine? Food is no longer food, it's fuel. I get in an abstract sense that's technically true, like it, calories are something that we burn to exist, but I think it does speak to this very real that um, we've lost, at this point at least, this battle between humanity and technology, Who, which one dominates the other, and that's predicated because of capitalism, utilizing that technology as something that can control us, and whether that's through the idea of social media and advertising and whatever psychology goes into that or on planned obsolescence technology is designed around the money we have that's available for spending because it's driven by capital so whether it's a again a dishwasher breaking down or ads being targeted towards you because your dishwasher broke down those both function as two different parts of humanity being uh, reduced to a machine that purchases and uh, expends energy to produce more things that then they purchase that sounds broken yeah 
it's a really frustrating conversation to have because I think the problem with this essay is that the writing is on the wall for what could have been. And instead, it's like we all have to work millions of hours a week to have shitty houses that should have been torn down because they're so inefficient and poorly designed. And all of the stuff in them was designed to fail. And you can't afford to actually keep up with keeping that shit going and also give a shit about anything else. Stop, you're going to make me cry. Yeah, probably. I'm going to need a drink. What time is it? (laughs) It's only 1130 in the morning. (laughs) uh yeah i guess it's just like it's i i don't want to get too like i don't know bullshitty i guess but the whole point of the essay or this collection of essays i think is to highlight what could be and to give hope and of course he was writing in the 1960s so you're at the peak of the hippie movement and like this idea of counterculture and there was a real sense of hope that boomers wouldn't be the shittiest generation in history and they fucking they started out so cool yeah and then they just they, then they got jobs in management yeah they dropped the ball yeah bookchin had like some really great ideas and they're still super valuable and i think there's a reason why people cling to him so much because of the fact he speaks in a way that is very accessible and a lot of times you're like yeah that makes a lot of fucking sense why aren't we doing that yeah gotta read it guys gotta read it so i think this gives us a good framework to think about in terms of how systems can exist into the 21st century and even in uh more specifically industrialized countries where you might look at like the ezln and say that those models don't apply here because our lifestyles are so different this provides that framework and it also provided a framework for another really great writer uh, and a political leader who also has a very complicated history, so I don't want to play him up too much, but Abdul Ajalan, who was the face or is continuously the face while still sitting in a prison cell of the movement in Rojava, which is going to be what the next episode of this miniseries is about. So if you thought this was really cool, wait till we talk about how it's been put into practice. Yeah, I've been working on uh, trying to get an AK built for the Rojava episode, but I live in Massachusetts, so it's impossible. Yeah, it sucks. And we talked about why gun laws suck in this country because of people that write them are not uh, exposed to them. That was on and the prologue. Yeah, so that's if you want to hear that? Get on Patreon. Yeah, uh, so. it's a good good topic. I rant and rave about gun laws. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll talk about them more in the future. But yeah, that's pretty much it. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, we tried to sum up some heavy concepts here but again that's post-scarcity anarchism by murray bookchin you can find that on ak press it's a really really interesting conversation to have and it's difficult to do on a podcast because there's a lot of all-encompassing conversations and there's some you know specific examples we could get into and uh i feel like we did an okay job yeah Uh, let us know how you felt give us a review tell all your friends to listen to it and um thanks for your time we'll be in touch see you